Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Anne Hart, who is Professor of Neuroscience at Brown University. Her research focuses on the molecular and cellular mechanisms underlying neurological disease, sensory signaling, sleep, and fatigue. Welcome, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your uh, recent papers, uh, Genetic Modifiers Ameliorate uh, endocytic and neuromuscular defects in a model of spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, before we get into the details, Anne, uh, what exactly is uh, spinal muscular atrophy? Well, how, how does it present and you know, what, what are the symptoms? Yeah, so spinal muscular atrophy is surprisingly common in the sense mm-hmm. that um, one in 40 of us carries, uh, in the white Caucasian population, we'll talk at least in the United States and most of Europe, carries a a silent allele that has no impact, probably on one of their chromosomes. But if you have a child with someone else who has a silent allele like this, the disease allele, then the odds are that one of the four children you have will have this disease. And the child is usually born seeming quite normal, but because they start losing the function and then the neurons in the spinal cord that control your muscle movements die, these motor neurons, the the child often will never sit up. It'll become unable to move its limbs. And before there was any treatment for this disease, you know, the prognosis was really poor, you know, decades ago, it was like a couple of years. Now with better, palliative and other assisted treatments and understanding how to keep the kids from getting infections. Often these kids can live until their teenage years, but it's been exciting to watch the field um, find a way to treat the disease as well. So now there's ex- tr- some treatments that can really help people. Yeah, yeah that- that's SMA. So, so you said one in 30. Uh, <clears throat> one, in four, one in 40 probably. Uh, one, one in 40 of the Caucasian population has the defect. 
it, it doesn't materialize uh, unless you have both copies. Bad. Yeah. If the kid gets two bad copies, then they okay. will almost, almost always get the disease. And sometimes, usually it's pretty severe. Sometimes yeah. there are families where it's a little, where it's less severe and symptoms might not show up until, you know, the teenage years. Yeah, but one in 40 is pretty high. And uh, so, so we find it only in the Caucasian population, not, no. not else? Ah, sorry. Yes. Um, it's a lower um, frequency in yeah. non-Caucasians, but it's still out there. It's still out there. So one in 40, at least intuitively, and feels pretty high. So do we have sort of a, a genetic test that people can take to identify if they have the oh, issue? Good question, too. Um, well, before there was a treatment for SMA, yeah. because of the way, you know, insurance and other things are set up and laws, there was not... Um, an easy way to test for SMA and it wasn't, you know, done for newborns or families. The, um, I think there are two, two reasons for this. One is there was no treatment and so it wasn't clear what we could do. So testing the newborns yeah. wasn't going to change the outcome. Now there's a pushes, there are pushes in multiple states to get testing done because now there is a treatment. So the other thing is it's, it can be a little tough to test because um, let me think about it. One, how to explain it. More than one thing can go wrong with the disease gene. And so it's yeah. not like you have a magic, you know, yes, no test here. It might be a little more complicated than that. Mm. Okay. Okay. And, and it's a progressive disease, right? It gets worse and worse over time. Yes, exactly. It starts, it's this, most of the infants are born and they seem they seem totally fine, but gradually they lose function of the neurons. And so then they lose ability to move their limbs and eventually respiration becomes a problem too, which is breathing. Okay, okay. And so, so you, you mentioned, um, uh, so before we get into it, so you are using a model here and using C. elegans as the, as the model? Yeah, um, I can, I can lean back and say when I started getting into science and I was interested in neuroscience back when I was in you know high school and college, I didn't think about you know I wanted to address questions about you know how neurons you know how develop how does the nervous system develop and how does the brain work what goes wrong in diseases, but I really never thought about you know working with flies and worms because really those don't seem like they would have much influence but. All of this, in the, that they would be similar, but it turns out almost all the animals on the planet have right. pretty much the same genes. Our neurons work pretty much the same way. And so one okay. of the reasons people start using flies and worms is because you can ask questions fast and easy. Yeah, so I guess evolution must be true there. Ha! Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have some evidence. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So I started using, I did my training on using flies at UCLA, but then when I started training to do my, as a postdoc to do my own independent lab and set up my own lab, I moved to C. elegans, which is a little worm about the size of a, hmm, size of a period on a printed page, you know, a millimeter long. But, you know, they have the same types 
of neurons, just in you know broad strokes, that humans do. They have motor neurons that move their muscles. They have other neurons that tell the motor neurons what to do. They use the same signaling molecules. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so, so really small. So, how many? We so we can actually potentially count how many neurons. Oh yeah, have. every this is. Um, this was groundbreaking work done by John White and John Solston and others in the C. elegans field. There were, the C. elegans, the ones we work with have 302 neurons and every worm has exactly the same ones. They're connected pretty much the same way to each other. So this neuron talks to this neuron, talks to that neuron. These neurons tell the muscles to move. So it's, it's really convenient, you can imagine, instead of having to look at a mouse spinal cord or humans, hundreds of thousands of, you know, millions of neurons, and every person is set up a little different. It's a lot yeah. easier to work on these things in worms. And I'm going to say, no one, um, you know, animal research always has questions of how, how well we are treating the animals. There's... Right. Less concern about that when you're working with worms and flies. <laughs> right, right. They don't. They don't have a lobby uh, yet. Yeah, um, they don't have. They don't uh, seem to feel. You know, they they don't like nasty things that hurt them, but they don't f have fear. We don't think they don't feel pain, so to speak. So, yeah. So, and, and so, yeah. One would imagine uh, that the movements obviously is very critical for the C. elegans. So the, the muscular aspects of that, uh, presumably it's a system that is, that is you know, really set up to move, right, in some ways? Yeah, it has to, the worms, flies, these little animals have to solve many of the same problems that large animals do in the sense that you have to move to find food, you have to move to avoid noxious things, you know, you have to um, find a mate if you're going to mate. And so C. elegans has, you know, stare, it look, they, they swim along in water or they can crawl on the ground. And I can just look at a worm and say, oh, that's a healthy worm that's moving really well. And another, if worms have, say have mutations we, that yeah. make their neurons or their muscles work less well. And if those are severe, you know, I can look at that worm and say, oh, that's sad. Yeah, so the 302 neurons, uh, so can we engineer a defect into them? Can you, can you repeat that question? Uh, can we engineer a, a defect? Can oh, we... yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So we can do this a lot of ways. When, yeah. um, and over the course of the career, you know, our tools are just getting better and better. You've probably talked to people about CRISPR-Cas9 in your series where we yeah. can go in and make the changes we want. So we can do that in C. elegans, and we take advantage of that um, in studying other diseases, and we'll probably take advantage of that again in studying spinal muscular atrophy. But at the time I did this work, that technology was not so advanced. And instead, what we can do is we can easily put, you know, insert a chunk of DNA in the worm's genome, and that can change how the neurons function or we can express, you know, proteins using these, we can even put proteins into the worm neurons that make them turn, you know, be more or less active when we turn lights off and on. It's really cool. Use what we call optogenetics to make the neurons more or less active. 
And so SMA in humans, um, they, they have the neurons, but they're just defective. They're producing um, unexpected uh, types of proteins. Uh, what exactly happens from mechanistically? Sure. So mechanistically, when I talked initially about how you have the one in 40 of the, you know, the Caucasian USA carry the disease gene, that means they have a broken copy that's defective of the SMA gene. And I'm, I'm gonna talk about this sort of in broad terms. Um, yeah. So the, it's the, fat, the problem with the SMA is that this protein is gone, it's not made. And normally our cells and especially our neurons need this protein to move RNAs around and put to, to um, do the new normal process of making lots of other proteins their cells need. So when they lose this protein, they start to, in effect, not being able to make the proteins they need to function. They start losing their connections to other neurons. They start pulling back their long, beautiful processes, and then they die. Right. And, and so, uh, so in humans, um, we, uh, we find you know, sort of the symptoms uh, that they have difficulty moving, and it's a progressive disease. Uh, and so going back to the model then, um, so is the is the paper about then uh, we could modify uh, these things uh, in the C. elegans and actually see some beneficial effects? Sure, there's a couple of threads that I think that are would be of interest to folks running through this paper. One of them is that we can, based on work you know done by our friends and our collaborators elsewhere, um, we can first of all we can have, make mutations in the worm's um, SMA gene, let's call it. And the worms, if we make just a little perturbation in how the gene works, the worms look okay. And if we make a huge perturbation, the worms can't have babies and those babies die really fast. That sounds familiar. So one of the threads in this is that um, if we want to study sort of these milder forms of disease that appear so, sometimes in human families where the kids are, are born and are okay for about a decade and then they get symptoms, we need a worm model that's milder. And so what we did was we put in a little perturbation into the worm SMA gene and the worms look okay, but then when we make them exercise really hard, we can see they have problems, you know, keeping up with the normal worm. So to make them work really hard, what we did was actually um, make their motor neurons using, you know, we shine a light on the motor neurons and that makes the motor neurons work really hard. And then the worms got tired and they fatigued and it took them a while to recover. So that was the difference in our mild SMA model between the normal worms and the SMA worms. So they just have to put in more effort to get the same response. Uh, kind of, it's also kind of like, I could describe it as um, you, the normal worms could swim after we, you know, made them, gave them a, a a serious stimulus, they can swim really fast and recover fast from all their thrashing around. Whereas the SMA worms, they started out swimming fine, but with the stimulus, they couldn't keep up and then it took much longer to recover. Okay. And what is the typical lifespan, C. elegans? 
really, um, it takes them about probably, depending on the temperature, a day to grow up from the egg to the adult, maybe two, and then they'll die within a week or two. Okay, okay. And so um, when we when you do the experiments, um, it would have an impact on the lifespan too, I would imagine. Yeah, if we get rid, if, if the, if the perturbation, if the, um, if we lose enough of SMA function, the animals are going to die, you know, just as they start to become adults. But if, um, or they'll have a shorter lifespan. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so going back to the paper, uh, so, so you're finding uh, potentially interesting therapeutic um, targets uh, through this work for, for humans? Maybe. And so what I want to do is talk to you for a minute about how science is really collaborative. You've probably figured this out yeah. of everybody listening. And so when we were trying to think about what goes wrong in the neurons, why does losing this protein lead the neurons to die? We would read work from other people's, you know, research. And a particular interest to me was work from Dr. Brunhilde Wirth in Germany. And she's a clinician and scientist who studies SMA families. And occasionally she would find a family where the little boy would have SMA, the son. And then she'd look at the genes of the sisters and she would, be, she would look at them and say, my goodness, this sister should have the same symptoms as the brother, but they don't. What is different? And she thought, looked, because they both the son and the daughter would have two bad copies of the SMA gene. So she started looking at other genes saying, well, maybe they have some other gene that protects them. So she's done quite a bit of work over the years looking for protective genes in different families. So one of the protective genes she found was called, um, you know, it's PLS3, that doesn't mean much, Plastin3. What it does is it helps the cytoarchitecture, you know, the skeleton of the cell helps the cells move. And daughters, the sisters who didn't have the disease, had more of this. So one of the things we're trying to do in this paper is figure out why more of this is helpful in the SMA. Yeah, yeah. And so, so if you have more of PLS3, if PLS3 is overexpressed, it, it seemed to have sort of a protective effect. And, and uh, could you, um, could you uh, do that uh, well, artificially? Yeah, well, first we could do that. We have first we and others have tried to do this in different models. If you have two, if you're, if the, the worm or the human has a super, has lost all of their SMA function, we've figured out that having more of this class PLS3 doesn't help. But if there's still some function left, if it's a little mild, then PLS3 seems to help it's tested. And we able to show that in our worm paper here, the first step was saying, look, if we put more PLS3 in our sort of mild SMA model, the worms do better. And then we went on to try and figure out why they do better. Yeah. And so um, going back to the humans, then that would imply 
um, but, you know, obviously this is early work. Uh, it, it has to be mild or it has to be picked up early. If, if, if you pick it up early, would that be uh, useful? Uh, in this I see. Um, it, it would, if we could take one of these, mod, these um, let's call them suppressors, one of these juiceful genes that Brunhilde's group is finding and put it in yeah. someone else, who has a mild case of SMA, then it would help. Or this is another possibility. We now have a treatment for SMA that partially helps. So in effect, it moves it from being severe SMA to mild SMA. So maybe those, all of those patients who are getting the current therapy could regain even more function in their life if we had this as an adjunct to that, as an addition to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's really fascinating. So um, you talked about one in 40 has the gene defect. Uh, in terms of actual incidence of SMA uh, in the U.S. population, what is the rate? Oh, I think um, it's, well, the math would suggest it would be about one out of 1,600 births. And I think, it's, I think it's a little less than yeah. that. I think it's about one in 2,000. But I'll say... You know, as a as a faculty member, I'll have in my lab or people who work in my lab and then go off to medical school and become doctors. One of them contacted me after they'd been in the clinic for, you know, their first six months and said, by the way, do we have anything to help SMA? Because I'm seeing lots of these babies. And so it's pretty common if I think if you spend a lot of time in, you know, pediatrics. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably really difficult disease, um, you know, especially because we don't really have uh, at least uh, a, a a cure or a treatment that is that is really robust, right? So this will be really I think, important. Yeah, I think the the cures that are out there are they're getting better, but they're also pretty invasive. They have to, you want to inject into the spinal cord treatments, and I mean, it's at one level, it's a game changer. It's like as a whole medical field, um, a therapeutic for a neurodegenerative disease that really, really works, but um, it's it's very expensive. The um, Upside is, you know, that we are making progress, though. What is, I'm going to say, when I started working on SMA, I was surprised to learn how common it was. And then I realized, you know, having an SMA baby, the baby is, you know, it's a, it's a family tragedy. It's a personal tragedy. But it's not like ALS that so many people have heard of because, and, you know, an ALS patient is a usually also a young adult who knows a lot of other people and they have a large social circle and so many people, more, more people hear of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about ALS. Uh, you have another paper uh, on ALS. Again, you do the elegance as a model here. Uh, now, again, uh, to, to set the context, um, what exactly is ALS ah, and what yeah. are the symptoms? So. ALS is a disease. It's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, named after a famous baseball player in the U.S. Oh, it's yeah. also um, what Stephen Hawking yeah. has. Right. Um, it's a disease that usually affects 
young to middle-aged adults. Um, and it starts as a weakness, usually somewhere in like one of the limbs, lit, you know, my, and then it becomes progressive and spreads to the other limbs. And eventually, you know, the patient can become incapacitated and unable to move their arms or their legs. And they're losing the same neurons, the same um, that, are, that are lost in SMA. But this is now happening in an adult, and it's a different genes are at fault. So there there's been beautiful work over the last couple decades in the ALS human genetics field to identify first one, then a couple more, and then several more genes who, when there's a mutation, when there's a bad copy, a disease allele, the patient will have probably get the disease. And they're actually losing the yeah, neurons. The neurons um, start out um, probably not functioning well, but you have a lot of neurons that move every muscle in your body. There's not just one neuron per muscle. Yeah. And so, you know, you start losing a few, it just, you know, starts out being weak. But as, as, as the disease spreads, you lose more and more, you get more obvious weakness. And in fact, it can spread up, the disease can spread um, to also kill neurons up in the up in the up in the brain, which are also in charge of helping move the muscles, the motor neurons in the up in the head. Right, and so it surfaces uh, later in life. Uh, I would imagine hawking is an unusual case, right, from oh, a lifespan yeah. perspective. What? What? Do yeah, one case? of the frustrating and. Um, and tough to understand things about ALS is that some patients will, you know, the average prognosis is death within a couple of years. Some patients though will have a disease that progresses super slowly and they'll live decades like Hawking. Hmm. And yeah. that is what happened yeah. to Hawking, right? Yeah. And I, I, so how long did he live uh, from oh, diagnosis? Let's see. He was a young adult, yeah. so he was probably, yes. and he was, okay, you've caught me out here. I don't know. He must have been in his 60s, at least when he died. Um, yeah. I think Hawking is also another example of the, the, the specificity of this disease. It affects the neurons that help our muscles move. And for many patients, it doesn't affect how well your brain thinks, though, at all. For some patients, it does. But your brain is, in effect, doing just fine. You feel and you think just as well as you ever did. But it's just that you lose your muscle control. Right. Yeah, and Hawking definitely oh, yeah. thought, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it did. Uh, so, so going back to the C elegance, so again, you're using the same model here. So, so what are we learning here from, yeah. from our so models? So it's the, if we want to study a disease in mice or flies or worms, we have to um, try and find a way to, I, you know, I'm not going to say you give the animals a disease, but that's kind of what it is. You have to create a model. And Oh, the simplest way that people started making models, um, especially because, you know, there were only, you know, some CRISPR wasn't available, 
originally when people started making models of ALS, they would often just take the human disease gene and put it into the mouse to fly the worm in lots of copies. And so there were, and so you, there would be a lot of disease proteins and the animals would get sick really fast. And you know, that can be convenient because like you wanna be able to test a lot of things. If it takes a year and a half for your animal to have symptoms, that's a long time to wait to do an experiment. So you can also learn there are some things you definitely can learn from these disease models where lots of protein is made and we've had lots of insights, but there are other things that, you know, can be hidden in that model. It could be that, you know, that's not at that because that's not exactly what's happening in the patient. The patient has a sort of more slow, a lower level of the toxic protein from the bad gene. <clears throat> and so with the discovery of the groundbreaking techniques of CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing, now we have the opportunity for this paper to precisely go into the worm genes and say, I want to put that little change that happens in the patient right there in the worm gene. It's exactly the same spot in the protein. And then I want to see what happens. So this paper was our first first attempt to make what I, you know, you could call a um, knock-in, a more precise, a non-overexpression model of ALS that might tell us more about why the neurons degenerate and die. Hmm. You talk, uh, talk about oxidative stress. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. What's the connection? So the disease model we started with was the um, working at one, there are many genes whose mutation can cause ALS. One of them is SOD1. People have been working on SOD1 for a long time. So SOD means superoxide dismutase. And I'm not gonna go dive deep into that, but it, it's, how to, it's one of the proteins that helps the cell deal with reactive oxygen species. Yeah, you know, oxygen is good until you have too much of it or you change it around a little and then it's actually dangerous, right? So free oxygen radicals are dangerous and your cell has to deal with those. And that's what the SOD1 protein should normally be spending its time doing. But when the disease allele comes into play we think now, based on the work that's coming out of our lab and others, that you have two things happen. One is the cell loses its ability to deal with this superoxide free radical oxygen stuff because there's less of the normal function and the new, the disease allele, the change that the disease makes in the SOD1 protein also makes that protein toxic or dangerous in some other way to the cell. So two bad things from one, yes. one change in a protein. Yeah, so this, this um, free oxygen radicals, I mean, uh, the, the, it, it could have a lot, um, lot of issues, right? Not just on the neurons, but generally on the body, I would imagine. So do we see um, sort of other peripheral issues in uh, ALS? Yeah, no. that this is, is a big... you've, you've, you've touched upon one of the 
big questions in the neurodegeneration field, especially the ALS field or SMA, in that these proteins are expressed in every cell of your body, but for some reason, neurons and motor neurons, in fact, are exquisitely sensitive to what goes wrong. And so your skin cells and your liver cells and your bone cells are mostly okay. It's somehow your neurons, specific neurons that can't deal with it. There are some neurons that aren't affected at all. <clears throat> so I would say that there's pretty good evidence that the metabolism, you know, your bill, you know, is a little bit different in maybe an ALS patient, especially as disease progresses. They tend to lose weight faster on the same diet maybe, but the overwhelming um, and huge thing that goes wrong is the neurons selectively. And so if I understand this correctly, and so diminishing levels of SOD1 uh, reduces the body's ability to uh, essentially deal with this bad stuff, this uh, oxygen radicals. And when the, when the level of those things are high, it, they seem to disproportionately affect the neurons. And uh, ultimately, over time, it, it ends up in the, in the issue yeah. that we are, we are yeah. talking so about, right? So definitely ALS. one of the theories about what's one of the contributors to ALS that's caused by mutation of SOD1 is that it seems like the cells aren't able to handle these free radical oxygens, these superoxides, as well as a normal cell. And yeah. the question becomes, um, is that all there is to it or is there more? And, and if we have two types of neurons dying, the, the spinal cord neurons, and the neurons in the brain, those are, they're actually two somewhat different types of neurons. Are they both equally sensitive to this, you know, superoxide oxygen paraquat stress, or is one of them more sensitive than the other? Right. Can, can we therapeutically sort of add stuff uh, so that the body has the ability to, to get rid of the um, free radicals? Getting that into the neurons would be tough. Yes, we yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so it's not necessarily a systemic no. effect. Um, oh, oh, I see you where know, you're going. Sorry. Um, if you, well, oh, there's a delicate balance, right, in our cells between they have to make, yeah. you know, deal with use oxygen, do superoxides all the time, that. Because we have, you know, we're oxygen based for our mitochondria. If we we can't shift it too much, because that runs us into other problems. The other cells of our body aren't really affected so much by the SOD1 mutations. Um, one, I'd be a little nervous about trying to change our your whole global overall and how you handle oxygen just i'd rather we'd rather yeah or to just try to help the neurons <laughs> right, right yeah. yeah this is always the problem right you uh 
you, you try to do something and all the all the effects of that in the complex system in other parts of the the, the system we can really really forecast and uh, and that that ultimately leads to yeah, it's a problem <laughs> for every therapeutic approach people want to make usually even even some of our even our best drugs right usually have off target or other yeah. consequences Yeah, I, I think, uh, and I don't know too much about that. I, I think this issue exists even for stuff like vitamin C and things like that. Oh, yeah. You know, when people overdo it. <laughs> yeah, them. don't take too much vitamin A. You'd think it'd be good yeah. for you, but no. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's sort of, sort of the same issue. So, so, so where are you heading? Uh, where are you heading with this? Um, with, with C. elegans, you you now have a method by which you can very finely uh, engineer the disease uh, into C. elegans. We can observe them, uh, and, and we can try different approaches on them. Um, yeah. What are yeah. the things that you're working so on to to prove? We are working on a couple things. So. That this first paper was a test case saying, oh, look, we can engineer models that are look much more precise into C. elegans. So we've gone ahead and done that for several other genes and created disease models for them. And now we can do things with all these models. First of all, we can try out. One of the overarching questions is, first of all, why do neurons die? And do the neurons die differently in an SOD1 ALS worm or patient than they die in a ALS caused by some other gene like FUS or HNRNPA1? So even though we call um, ALS one big disease that's, you know, we sort of lump everyone together, it may be that it's really more than one disease. And so we want to understand that. Yeah. So we um, also can use our worm models and, you know, we can have millions of, you know, worms at a time and we can look for mutations in other genes that might help the neurons. So I'm going to call these suppressor genes because we can have so many worms. We can look for suppressor genes in worms, figure out how they work and then hand them off to our collaborators who work on flies or mice and have them test those genes in the flies or the mice. And then if something works in worms and flies and mice, odds are pretty good it's gonna work in humans. It's gonna be relevant. So we have a lot of collaborative projects where we are either taking suppressor genes we're identifying now in worms and moving, finding them and then moving them to our friends to test in other animals or genes that they think help there and we're testing them in the worms and then we're trying to figure out like mechanistically why the neurons die as well there's lots to do well, job yeah security. well i mean um, admittedly <laughs> job security and figuring out the basic mechanisms is fine it would be lovely though to figure out an effective yeah. something that could be a therapeutic and then i'd like to have us be able to fix, you know, help the patients cure them, and then we can all focus on some other disease. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, so so SMA ALS, uh, it looks like a lot of um, lot of common features there. Neurodegenerative um, gene uh, defects. What, what do we know about the environmental effects? Uh, are there features from the environment oh, that, that sort yeah. of combine um, with genetic effects? For SMA, my short answer is probably not. For ALS, okay. that's much more of a question in the sense. If you start reading, you know, websites or older books or older studies, people would talk about sporadic ALS that just appeared in a person and no one else in the family had the disease versus familial ALS, where you suddenly realize, oh, that's what the grandmother had, that's what the grand, the father had, and now the kids are probably at risk. That's familial. So we used to think that most ALS was sporadic because we couldn't find a gene. But now that we know more genes, more and more we realize there's a big genetic component to ALS. But there's still a large section of patients where one can't find one of these genes. And so that means, and now I'm speculating, that either there are a lot of really rare genes, each, each family is like a unique, sort of, oh, we very rarely does this cause disease, or something about the environment that that person's genetic makeup and they were in led to ALS. And I don't want, you know, you can now think through your head of all the things that are bad for neurons and think maybe those combined with a specific right. like ALS mutation might lead to disease and people are testing that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, so do we see um, changes in incidence <clears throat> rates uh, over time um, and across the world? I mean, it's a little more common in males than females, like many diseases, but not enough to make you, you know, shocked. Um, it seems like it might be of a little higher incidence in the military and in athletes or people who are super athletic. But again, it's um, not, it's not overwhelming that. So it could be just that there's something about ALS, maybe <laughs> this is this is also speculation. Maybe there's something about an someone who's going to develop ALS that makes them, you know, more athletic. It works really well in the beginning and then there's a crash that we call ALS. So maybe they're more prone to go into athletics because they succeeded on average more. I don't know. Yeah, you mentioned uh, SMA being more uh, frequent in Caucasian populations. Um, Is that the same for ALS too? Mm -hmm. Not as much, but the genes that cause, okay. that we know about already, that cause ALS in different, like the, I think the Japanese, if you study, if you study ALS genetics in Japan, some gene mutations are more common than other mutations in the United States. Right. And for ALS, obviously, you have to control for age. Uh, different countries have different uh, different yeah. percentages well, of age populations. That's true too. Too, um, right? It's another question also, and I, you know, I'm circling just slightly back to your conversation, but ask a question about environment. Does environment change when symptoms show up? Yeah. It could. 
we don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that that is uh, kind of curious about this. Uh, I think you yeah. you called it spontaneous ALS or something like that. That's sort of cute, right? So it uh, the conditions are there. It doesn't really surface, and then suddenly one yeah, day. Yeah, if you just, ask uh, most of us why it takes so long to show up, yeah. we would probably say the biggest factor in that is that these disease mutations, the bad toxic protein is slowly accumulating. And on top of that, you're slowly losing, because of that, neuron function. And eventually you reach a tipping point where things start going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, a lot of the diseases ultimately uh, gets there. And I think, you know, it's sort of a plumbing problem. It's uh, it's a system designed for maybe 30 years. Yeah. Now we're taking it to 75. Yeah, it's, it's not been designed <laughs> for that long. It's like the worrisome and, thing. How many of us will get Alzheimer's or a dementia, you know, if we all find a way to live to, yeah. you know, 100? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, and yeah, I know that you're doing a lot of work in this area. So if you look forward five years, where do you think, um, where is your sort of highest level of optimism in terms of therapy uh, for both SMA and ALS? Um, what type of therapy do you think we will get to? And uh, whether, you know, those things can ultimately cure this or just oh. slow it down? I, uh, I think, think SMA is on a good track in the sense of it's clear what we need to put back into the neurons, what gene, and they're going to get better, I think, and less invasive slash expensive for the therapy. And then for the SMA patients, it'll then be a question of how much better, what else can we do? What else can we add? So SMA is on a pretty good glide path to not, if you get treatment early, not be not be fatal and to be something where, you know, decades of life with really, with good mobility should be expected. ALS is trickier. If you, five years from now, it's possible that we'll be able to slow. I think, I think in five years we'll have treatments for some patients, especially if they have a gene we recognize where we can, you come in, to lab, or if you know you, it runs in your family. Within five to 10 years, we'll be able to say, we're watching you, we're worried about this, maybe you should, we can talk about this sort of treatment. But um, the screening, you know, the societal questions are just as big in the sense of how easy is it gonna be and how much do we people wanna invest as a society in us for you could have a mutation in any of these 30 genes yeah 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 i mean that that is the sort of the overhanging question yeah. uh for yeah. healthcare in general right um it, it seems like technology is developing a lot faster than the regulatory framework or in some sense a societal <laughs> Um, uh, so to speak, right? Uh, and so it's a really complex 
uh, complex thing, but a good thing is uh, technology yeah, is really it sounds like you should have an, if you haven't already have another podcast on on that topic of you know yeah yeah definitely look into that excellent yeah this has been great care. and thanks so much for spending time bye. yeah you too bye This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.